This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. For more information, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Knowledge at Wharton on Business Radio. Here's your host, Dan Loney. Well, we all hate taxes, and I think we understand why some of them are imposed, and then it seems like we laugh at when others are. The latest one, which is drawing a lot of attention, and several states are trying to turn it around, has drawn the ire of pretty much all women, and it is a tax on tampons. It has been around for a while. Several states, including California, though, are bringing forth legislation to try and change the law. The U.K. said that they would do away with theirs, one that was put forth by the European Union. To take a look at the controversy, we are joined on the phone by Jennifer Weiss-Wolf, who is the vice president for development at New York University's Brennan Center for Justice. And also joining us is Chris Bobel, who is Associate Professor of Women and Women's and Gender Studies at the University of Massachusetts in Boston. Jennifer, Chris, thank you very much for coming on. Good morning. Good morning. Thank Thanks you. For having us. Thank you very much. Uh, how did this tax, Jennifer, really get started in the first place? Because this has been around for a while, correct? Well, yeah, and I think to be clear uh, in talking about it, it's it's not a special tax. People use the term luxury tax, and that's yeah. kind of a, a riff on you know the EU's definition of the value-added taxes on non-essential luxury items. Here in the United States, it's not a special tax. It's not a luxury tax. It's sales tax. It's, it's the same sales tax that's applied to all kinds of other items. What the argument here is is that these tampons and menstrual products should be exempt from sales tax um, as a medical necessity and as a matter of equity and fairness. And, and obviously it is something that, that women use on, on a consistent basis, and they do need, need it as a part of, of their lives, correct? Well, yeah, sure. I mean, uh, yes, it's absolutely needed. It's just to yeah. function normally and regularly and be productive in society. But it's true, too, that it's a medical necessity. Not using uh, these products causes infections. is not necessarily healthy for women. Is this, Chris, almost a version of gender bias because of the fact that these have been these taxes have been in place for, for such a long time and, and not having been addressed? Yeah, I think it's a reflection of the sort of socially mandated invisibility of menstruation. You know, we're social, we socialize each other to keep it quiet and hidden. So it doesn't surprise me that this tax has not been challenged until recently because it's just, it's typical of how we regard the bodily process in all sorts of ways. We just don't take menstruation very seriously, although, you know, more than half the population globally faces it on a monthly basis for about 40 years of their lives. So it's kind of a, a paradox in a way that it's menstruation is sort of everywhere and nowhere. So yeah. so it's exciting that finally people are tuning into this and saying, hey, wait a minute. It's probably not just that women are singled out in a way, paying a tax um, on a product that is a necessity. And, and obviously, as you kind of alluded to, this is a subject amongst many other types of subjects uh, that needs to be brought forward and needs to be discussed and really hasn't been. Right. I mean, when we don't talk about our bodies, 
then we make it um, possible to not pay attention to um, when things aren't working out. So if we don't educate each other and talk openly about menstruation, for instance, then anomalies of the menstrual cycle, including, you know, ovulatory anomalies, aren't we're not noticing them and we're not providing information and resource and support to people. So the menstrual silence and invisibility can actually be a real, can really undermine health in addition yeah. to sort of just making people feel badly about themselves and perpetuating shame. I mean, there really can be serious health consequences when we don't pay attention to this natural and regular bodily occurrence. Uh, Jennifer, I, there was a comment actually by President Obama a little while ago uh, about a, when he was asked about this tax in a, in a press briefing, and he he basically said that that part of the reason why is that at the time when these taxes were were put into place, pretty much all of the representation was by men, so there wasn't a, a probably as much a correlation as there probably should have needed to be back in the day when these taxes started to started to pop up. Yeah, exactly. And it was it was a, it was a right on and brilliant answer. He was actually asked a question by a 26 year old YouTuber who who boldly posed the question to him, um, and the response that this is what happens when women aren't at the decision making table, um, when women aren't fairly represented in our democracy, um, is is right on the money, literally. Um, you know, so and Chris's comment about the invisibility of menstruation, even though it's sort of there and part of you know the lives of half the population, um, it's that same invisibility in our, in our, in our democracy and uh, when women's experiences aren't reflected uh, in the decision-making that's made. As alluded to at the top, there are several states uh, looking at repealing uh, attacks on uh, tampons going forward. Uh, how far along in the process are those discussions in terms of bringing that legislation forward? It's, it, it varies by state. So basically, since the 2016 legislative session began, um, and I should back up and say that, um, among other activists, I had put forward a petition, a national petition, challenging all 40 of the states uh, that impose the sales tax um, to, you know, to cease from doing so, and Cosmopolitan Magazine co-sponsored that petition. Uh, we had put it up in October of 2015. And at the start of the 2016 legislative session, we saw, uh, you know, real progress and action starting to happen. California was the first one, the first state to put forward uh, such legislation in this session. And seven states have, have followed, uh, which include Michigan, Wisconsin, Virginia, Utah, and then New York and Connecticut um, reintroduced legislation that had been uh, that had uh, arisen in the 2015 legislative session. And then even three others, South Carolina, Tennessee, and Illinois, are debating the issues live uh, now in, in committee and in, within their legislatures, though legislation has not yet been introduced. Thus far, it looks like New York might be furthest along. Uh, it passed unanimously in the Assembly um, last week, uh, headed for the Senate now, where it has a Republican sponsor. I should add that almost all of these bills have bipartisan support. Yeah. Uh, and the Republican sponsor and the Republican uh, majority leader of the New York State Senate have indicated you know, that there is support for this uh, bill in the Senate. And um, you know, we're hopeful that it'll pass. The governor has indicated that he'll sign it. Um, I should also just add that yesterday, New York City introduced a five-piece uh, package of legislation also uh, focused on menstruation and menstrual equity. Um, it's a really sort of holistic and broad-reaching uh, package of legislation that would mandate the uh, provision of free tampons and pads in all of the city's public schools, corrections facilities, and shelters 
And the other two pieces of legislation that were part of that package are resolutions directed toward the state uh, to eliminate the tampon tax and to also include these products in their uh, provision of food stamps and WIC benefits. So what New York City did is is very far-reaching, very exciting, and hopefully will spur uh, the sales tax legislation to advance successfully in New well, York. And as you kind of alluded to right there, is the other kind of aspect to this story is the financial aspect and the potential savings that could be there for women, especially when you're talking about low-income families uh, that are struggling to make ends meet on a you know on a week-to-week basis. I'm not sure what the amounts would be, but when you're th- talking about sales tax in a lot of states that could be six to seven percent on a particular item, you know, it's not a ton of money, but it does add up over the course of a year. Yeah, I mean, every penny counts, um, especially for families that are struggling um, or have you know more than one person who menstruates in their household. Um, so. For sure, the sales tax uh, repeal would have real consequences uh, and real impact on people's lives. But I think equally important, the sales tax discussion has elevated the entire public discussion around menstruation and around sort of the fairness of our policies and what we want to see on the part of our government and our society in terms of supporting women so that they can ultimately be fully productive in school, in class, um, and, you know, and everywhere they're present. And if an investment like tampons and pads uh, on the part of, for example, our Department of Education here in New York City will improve the educational outcome of half of its students, yeah. um, you know, it's, it's a worthwhile proposal. Chris, I, I think it's just something about playing off of what Jennifer just said that a lot of people probably don't normally associate is the effect, the, the, the mental benefit that it could be for young women, especially in a case of, of school systems. Uh, and obviously, as we were just alluding to, the financial benefit as well. You know, these are important things that I think sometimes get, get lost in the wash in this, and they probably shouldn't. I think you're right. I, I mean, Beyond the financial implications, which are not trivial, um, there is the sort of the emotional consequences of feeling secure, feeling um, that you, you have access to resources to take care of your body, not worrying about leaking, not worrying about how am I going to pay for the next box of pads or tampons. I mean, that, those kinds of, those are subtle kinds of distractions, but when, you're, it's, when it's your body, it's profound. So I think, as Jennifer rightly points out, this is part and parcel of a, an entire movement that's trying to raise awareness around the reality of menstruation, trying to destigmatize it, um, and to sort of have plain talk conversations about this biological process that does impact only female bodies. So it's it's exciting. It's an exciting moment to, that we're actually talking periods openly in lots of lots of spheres. Where there's legislation that's been reintroduced to mandate the National Institutes of Health to allocate resources for independent testing of um, menstrual care products. If, if that actually got some traction in Congress, wouldn't that be exciting? Yeah. So there's, there's lots of attention now, and it's, it's long overdue. How, how, do you, how do you expand that conversation? In what avenues do you need to take this down? Is it something that, that you need to bring up in the school systems? Is it, you know, where, where do you need to take this, this conversation? I think everywhere. I mean, okay. it has to happen um, simultaneously on lots of, in lots of different contexts. Certainly the schools. Right now we do have menstrual health education in schools, but it's, it's owned by um, some care companies like Procter & Gamble and Johnson & Johnson who provide curricula and materials for free to educators. 
that's okay, but it would be better if we had it built into more than one place in the curriculum and it wasn't tied to a corporate agenda. Um, families certainly need to be empowered and supported to talk about these issues, and not just moms and daughters, but fathers and daughters, for instance, so that it's not just a women's issue, because we all have a stake in healthy bodies and healthy lives. Um, I think um, uh, it's great to see it playing out in the media beyond just, you know, menstruation as a punchline or as a, you know, a vehicle for comedy, but actually an honest conversation about options to care for our bodies, implications of caring for them in, in positive ways. So I think it has to happen in all kinds of places. I mean, yeah. the, com- the, co- the comedians and the sitcom writers have kind of um, been the only voices, um, and it's great to see that there's more people talking about it too, including health educators who, interestingly, have neglected this issue um, historically. It doesn't show up on reproductive health care agendas. It doesn't show up on feminist health care agendas which has been sort of an odd silence, yep. but it's starting to shift. Jennifer? I would actually add in that, that creative, bold, and often female policymakers and lawmakers um, are a huge, huge asset and driving force in, um, in you know, advancing this agenda right now. In addition to the municipal agenda, for example, uh, put forth by uh, Council Member uh, Julissa Ferreras and other leaders in the uh, New York City Council just yesterday, um, there are legislators at the state and municipal level across the country who are implementing and trying to advance similar legislation. And then really sort of creative policymaking, uh, U.S. Congresswoman Grace Meng, who's also from here in New York, um, has both introduced um, a bill in Congress that would reclassify the IRS tax code status of menstrual products such that they can be included in our flexible spending account allowances. Currently, the way hmm. they're, they're classified in the tax code makes them exempt from, from FSA uh, uh, allowances. So, you know, that, again, is a simple fix that yeah. will actually, you know, provide cost savings and accessibility for millions. She also um, was able to very, very, uh, in a very simple way, uh, through one of the committees that she sits on um, for Homeland Security, there was uh, there was a list of uh, acceptable products that FEMA funding could be used to purchase, in this case, on the part of emergency shelters. Um, and okay. she simply yeah. added these products to the list. Simple as that. Well, it would seem, that, though, playing off of something you just said, that in, in terms of the day-to-day uh, kind of operation and purchase of these products, that putting it within the FSA plan would be seemingly, I would think, the easiest way to go about this. Am I right? It, well, it's, it's one way to do it. It doesn't necessarily, I mean, it increases, uh, it increases the affordability because yeah. you can use pre-tax dollars to buy them. Right. Um, so it's just one avenue. There are a lot of levers. Uh, you know, I've particularly been focused on policy uh, initiatives, but as Chris said, it's, it's it's part of our education system. It's part of our family structures. Um, there are probably many, many, many other uh, ideas like that that we could throw out there. Because the truth of the matter is, menstruation is kind of at the core of everything. Yeah. Um, when we talk about homelessness, when we talk about poverty, when we talk about health, when we talk about equality, when we talk about equity, um, it's there for half of the population and. Focusing on it uh, means focusing on solutions. Now, thinking about it, Chris, I guess that you know the FSA angle would be one potential way, but there are so many uh, people out there, so many women out there that don't have the ability to have a flexible spending account, you know, with the company that they work at, that they would need to have another option on top of that. 
Yeah, I mean, Jennifer's right. It's one way, but it's not the only way. There have to be a lot of different approaches, I think, in order to address a lot of different people's realities. I mean, right, bodies come in all shapes and sizes and different sure. income brackets and, and different accesses to different kinds of resources. So it wouldn't be, it wouldn't be a silver bullet for sure. Do you believe that, that the, the approach of trying to get legislation passed, and, and I think it's great that, that a lot of states are jumping on board uh, with this, but do you think it's even a better approach to be able to do this at the federal level than working this state by state? If you take that path, Jennifer, you know, you're talking about a process that would take several years. At the federal level, it might take a, you know, quite a bit shorter amount of time to, to get this changed. Well, there's, you know, there are different reforms that are going to achieve different outcomes. So take, taking on the sales tax question, for example, is, is a state question. I mean, this, this taxes are levied yeah. by the states, and there's not a federal avenue to take there. Um, but again, the kind of reforms like Congresswoman Mang has introduced um, are one idea for federal reform, and there are others, too. I mean, our food stamps program... Um, is probably in need of, of, of all kinds of overhaul and including these products in federal benefits programs that are largely used by women and women-led families like food stamps, like women and infants and children nutritional program, um, and making these products more affordable, accessible um, through those programs would be also, I think, a really excellent federal avenue to pursue. Um, I think actually what's really neat um, and exciting about taking on menstrual advocacy is that there are solutions at the community level, at the yeah. city level, at the state level, and at the federal level. Um, and, yeah, it's time-consuming to take them all on. Uh, like Chris said, there is not going to be a silver bullet for uh, meeting the need of, you know, half of our population who, again, different income brackets, different realities, different, you know, different everything. But the idea that solutions exist in so many different avenues of our society and that people are willing to take on this issue and explore them um, is, is about as promising an advancement as I can imagine. The, the hope, I guess, uh, then, Jennifer, is to see some of these states pass this legislation at some point during the course of, uh, of this legislative year. Uh, and seemingly, like, a, a lot of things happen, uh, you know, going from state to state. Once you get it passed in a, a handful of states, then seemingly other states will jump on board as well. Yeah, it becomes a little bit more inevitable. And um, and I, I will be thrilled to see this tax lifted uh, in all 40 states. But that's just the beginning. Um, you know, that, that's just the start. Real real live menstrual equity and menstrual equity policy goes much, much deeper than the, you know, roughly eight cents on the dollar that we're paying for our tampons. Chris? Yeah, I, I agree completely. It's, 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 it's pushing the boulder up the hill, and it's I think it's, it's, it's smart, strategically speaking, from a social movement's perspective, to focus on the cost piece because people that really resonates for people and people are, can get on board with that. It's a little harder to talk about menstrual discourse or menstrual conversation or yeah. shedding the shame or challenging the stigma. That's a little abstract. It's a lot abstract. And so it, it's hard. But when you actually put a, a, a you know, eight cents, uh, eight cents, you know, that, that people will listen to that. So I think it's an important sort of wedge. Um, and it opens up a, a whole range of possibilities to reform all, all the kinds of ways that menstruation impacts our lives and the ways that we manage it currently quite dysfunctionally. For more business news and analysis from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.